I'm David Madsen, and this is Primetime 89, a chance for me to visit and talk story, check in and catch up with classmates from a generation ago, finding out how they're doing, where they are, how they got there, and what experiences they've had along the way. The important things that we may take for granted as kids as just being there, a good education and friends, family and a stable home. They were important to Lloyd too, but they're nothing that he would take for granted. Reliant on caregivers in his youth and a recipient of Princess Pawahi's gift, he's come full circle from being a beneficiary of the system to being a provider. He's taken the responsibility of giving back to his community, the Lahui, our culture, and importantly, providing for his own family better than he was. What's up, Dave? So it's good to see you. Same here, brother. Seems like forever. It's just been, what, less than a week, right? Hey, I like that. <laughs> Coconut? Yeah, I husked a bunch of coconuts this morning. Nice. I'm going to drink some and actually <laughs> use the shells to make me some uh, freestanding uh, puni or, or coconut drums. Yeah. That in hula. So see how big that coconut is? It's, it's huge. Like, and it's like round. Gallon, the water content is, uh, is about a half a gallon's worth of coconut water in here. Really? Because, you know, after husking like 10 coconuts, it was like, and they're green coconuts. So it's like, uh, you know, oh. green coconuts compared to brown dry coconuts is much harder to husk because it's still wet inside. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they provide the, the sweetest water. So it's like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Get in my face, practically. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, very good. It is kind of early. It's only 10, 15 in the morning here, and I'm actually having a bottle. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. To be more relaxed to do this. Of night. course. And, you know. What should I call you? You you go by Lloyd? Either or. Lloyd. You can call me Kumula. I mean, only some of our classmates know me by that name. Yeah, most of our classmates know me by Lloyd Singh. So, and Kumula really is a name that's after high school. More people started calling me by that name versus Lloyd. But whatever you're more comfortable with, either or, it's up to you. Blended families aren't uncommon, and Lloyd's interest in uncovering and discovering the stories of his family's complex lineage has been his ongoing passion, as is sharing it, it seems. Besides Hawaiian, what ethnicities do you have? So yeah, I'm Hawaiian, Chinese, Samoan, part Tahitian, Tokelau. Oh my goodness. Do you have any relationship with parents today? So my father passed away when I was 10 years old. Uh, My mother turned California today. My father and her got divorced when I was three. She got married two other times. She had two other husbands. Mm-hmm. You know, I have brothers from those re- marriages. And, you know, I'm grateful for those brothers of mine because, you know, they're the closest family that she has that can be there for her. Over the years, as our kids were growing up, I brought my mom home so that mm-hmm. she could spend time with us during the holidays, you know. But she doesn't like to fly. So my mother and her family, they were all from Fangasa from Falaniu in American Samoa, and they came to Hawaii in the, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother was a young teenager uh, when they came from Samoa to Hawaii, and then, you know, eventually she met my father. He was 30-plus years older than my mom. Wow. I don't know how it worked out, but, you know, 
my parents got married, you know, when I was born, my dad was 56 and my mom just, you know, turned 19. Mm-hmm. And so my dad was old enough to be her own father, you know? So when my dad was born, he was the youngest of like 11 siblings and the same thing. His mother was young and his father who was from China um, was much older. It's kind of interesting. So even that my father was married twice. I'm from my father's second marriage. So I have a brother who's older than I am and his daughters are like my age. So, so my brother um, from my dad's first marriage, he is like 75 years old, but you know, it was, it wasn't really until I met my wife who is a genealogist. So my wife was very familiar with going to, uh, you know, all of those places that you find documents that support genealogy work. I knew my mom wasn't Hawaiian. So I was checking on my dad's side, the Hawaiian Chinese side. Mm-hmm. You know, then I found my uncles. My uncle had a delayed birth certificate, one of those old ones where you have a photograph. They used to bring in witnesses. So, yeah, I remember this person was born here. They interview them, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So from that, I learned a little bit more about uh, going to my grandmother's generation and then learning about my grandfather. So, you know, the thing about my grandfather, you know, even though I carry the name Singh today, he had so many different kinds of names, you know, Unking Singh. And, you know, even they had a nickname. They never even called him by Unking Singh. They used to call him Kini Kini. And I was like, oh, why did they call him Kini Kini? And so then anyway, one day I found a document at the Bureau of Conveyances that my grandmother and my grandfather, Unking Singh, they sold a, a parcel of land to, apparently my grandfather was married before. Because, you know, he was married to two other Hawaiian women prior to meeting my grandmother and then having 11 kids. After the- <laughs> Yeah, so, and then to find Kini Kini, you know, that was, well, they called him Kini Kini. And I said, why did they call him Kini Kini? So the, in that document, he signs his Chinese character. So I was like, oh man, that was cool. It was the first time I ever seen his name that he hand wrote his name. So I went to the Chamber of Commerce in Chinatown and I asked, can you tell me the translation of this name or what is this name? I said, oh, sorry, it's incomplete. It's only half of the name. You need to have the other character. It's missing something, but it says, what does it translate? Oh, it's Cantonese. It's what, oh, it says Kin Yi. That's what it translates to. I said, oh, wow. maybe that's why they call him Kini Kini because it was Kin Yi and then whatever the other character that was missing. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to know that all the girls, uh, my, my dad's siblings all carried Kini Kini, but it was spelled K-I-N-E, K-I-N-E, like Kini Kini. Mm-hmm. And then all the boys was carrying Kini Kini, K-I-N-I. Kini Kini or Kini is also a Hawaiian name, not to be confused with the Chinese name that, you know, mm-hmm. was the name that they were Hawaiians were calling my grandfather. I asked my brother, you know, when did dad change his name to Lloyd Harold Singh? Because I'm a junior. So I'm Lloyd Harold Singh Jr. Mm-hmm. And, you know, carries that name. So when did he change? Oh, uh, when he married my mother, my mother thought it was a good idea to change his name, but using the same initials. So his name was Lin Hung. So, so Lynn became Lloyd and Hung became Harold and the Singh, of course, stayed Singh. So, <laughs> okay, oh, that's okay. That's if that's what your mom said, that's how dad got his name. I said, whatever it is. And, you know, I found their marriage information because, you know, my dad lived on the Big Island at one time. Uh-huh. They got, and him and my brother's mom, they got married at a Heidi Church in Hilo, found the registry, found his, his uh, my dad and you know, his first, uh, his wife with um, my brother Ronald's white mom and uh, I made all the copies so, you know now I have like a lot of genealogy I've collected over the years that's amazing you know pretty awesome it's wonderfully complicated 
but you've got so many different blood relatives in so many different ways. (laughs) I thank my wife for helping me do my genealogy and I'm still looking, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't ended yet until, you know, it's not going to end for me until I find my dad's birth information, Mm -hmm. my grandmother's, uh, if I can find her marriage information to my, uh, to my grandfather, to me, that would be great because even my brother, you know, my brother is a member of the church of Latter-day Saints and he's been doing genealogy. It might be one of those things that we may pass and never know that information, you know? Lloyd's upbringing was very different from most of ours, and it may have laid the path for him to attend Kamehameha schools as a beneficiary. Growing up, I was never really proud too much to be Samoan because where I grew up, I grew up in Wahewa Heights, and there weren't that many Samoans living in Wahewa Heights. But, you know, I was a foster child, so mm-hmm. I grew up in the foster care system. Um, my parents uh, divorced when I was, I was one month of turning three, when my parents divorced, my sister and I were put into foster care system and we were raised separately. So my sister grew up in Kalihi mm-hmm. while I was growing up in different foster homes across the island of Oahu. So I, you know, my first homes I can remember was living in Makakilo. I lived in two different homes in Makakilo. And by the time I turned five and going on six, I ended up uh, going to another foster home up in Wahewa Heights, mm-hmm. a Filipino family. So I was raised with Filipinos up until graduation from high school. Sure. From a young age through um, graduating from high school, you were with the same Filipino foster family? Uh, when I turned six, um, I went to the Dakuag. The, the family name is Dakuag. I entered first grade up at Iliahi Elementary School, which is up in Wahewa Heights. And yeah. so I started first grade up there. And um, by the time I was sixth grade, you know, my parents was thinking, oh, okay, so you should test for Kamehameha because you're at least you're Hawaiian. And because you're a foster child, you know, you might be the indigent status and might be able to, and you know, I was pretty smart in elementary school. And even to apply to Kamehameha, you have to show proof you're part of Hawaii, whether you your birth certificate or your parents' marriage certificate, you know, even being at, you know, as a foster child in the foster care system, um, I at least had those documents. All of those factors allowed me to enter Kamehameha at seventh grade. You know, instead of riding the bus every morning, and afternoons going home to Wahewa, you know, I wanted to do other things like play sports and stuff like that. And the only way I could do that was if I lived on campus or became a boarder because my foster parents, you know, they weren't very heavily involved in extracurricular stuff. I was at home with four other foster kids. So there were five of us foster kids. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to about to like participate and come to come in my campus, take sure me to classes and games and stuff. So it was Lapsley who allowed me, who made the way possible for me to get into boarding. That was kind of cool because, you know, I came in the spring of our ninth grade year is when I got into boarding at Iolani Dorm yeah. on campus. I was a boarder ever since and got to play yeah. sports and do other things, you know. So that was kind of cool. Some of the real standout teachers that I've had in high school, or at least even from middle school to high school, you know, like um, for Mr. Meek was in middle school for art. Mm-hmm. You know? Kavika Makanani in high school for Hawaiian history. I mean, he was the first Hawaiian man that I actually learned from that, you know, was very akamai and very knowledgeable, you know, about our, our history as a people. So, you know, to this day, I still have a friendship with Mr. Makanani, even though he's retired. Um, what kind of mementos have you held on to from high school? Wow. Uh, I have all my yearbooks. Um, I have... Um, I have a scrapbook that I created. It has newspaper clippings of when we were playing football and when we were 
you know, we were on the right pace when uh, Coach uh, Milton Holt was our coach, and uh -huh. I thought we were going to, you know, take the ILH, and then we lost to Damien in the playoffs, and, you know, we were just going downhill that postseason. Like, so I have all those clippings, uh -huh. clippings of uh, friends in the dorm who also did well, Kavika Ganas, when he was doing his baseball and home run hitting, and I have a lot of the senior pictures, but, you know, I, I kind of, like, downsized it to just one scrapbook with pictures and uh -huh. But you know, I keep it at my at my workplace because it really doesn't have no place for me at home. What's one thing about you that hasn't changed? Definitely being proud to be Hawaiian in our culture. I think if anything, it's kind of been amplified. Uh, yeah. You know, I never thought I would be working for Kamehameha. You know, being a product of Kamehameha is one thing, but to go back and then and return all the blessings that Paui has given and to teach another generation of Hawaiians. You know, it, it's been a good thing, but yeah. It's wonderful. And that's a testament to your love and your commitment to the culture, being a product, but also going back and nurturing the next generation. Yeah. So if you could have lunch with a classmate who you didn't know too well in high school. Mm. You know, I'll probably, you know, I know who Carl Powell is, um, but, you know, in high school, I never really was in his circle of friends. Probably him only because, you know, he did a lot of things. I never knew he was an, you know, he was an artist in, in his own right, you know. When you're truly on your own in life, after high school, things get real. Lloyd describes how, as a young adult, he navigated those years with decisions that were deliberate and purposeful, and how he built his life and his family, taking on new responsibilities. When I was 17, I enlisted in the National Guard. Uh, I went to Army basic training in my between our junior senior year during that summer. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, I was in the Army. By that time, my Filipino parents had uh, moved to Vegas, and I was already a student at the University of Hawaii. And so, you know, after that, I was pretty much on my own. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was uh, up in New Jersey at Fort Dix, and then after I graduated, I went to uh, Fort Gordon, the Signal Corps, up in. Uh, Augusta, Georgia, and I stayed there for like almost a year and a half uh, learning how avionics, working on uh, helicopters and their electrical equipment, their avionic equipment. Then hmm. I came back to Hawaii and then I enrolled at University of Hawaii. I joined the National Guard was because they had the tuition waivers. Yeah. And so the uh, tuition waivers, just like the GI Bill, all the tuition for UH was covered and Mahalo to Princess Pawahi, all my books and housing and meals was covered. Yeah, I pretty much went to school for free. I stayed in the guard long enough to get my, my master's. And after that, I took a break because I felt like I needed a break. Was it a little rocky between graduating from Kamehameha and then finding your footing? Well, because I had the National Guard, so I didn't have to worry about college. I didn't have to worry about paying my housing expense. It was just transitioning from high school dorm to the University of Hawaii UH dorms. You know, just my living conditions, uh, you know, and during like um long-term breaks or summer breaks, like where am I going to go during the summer? Oh. Um, because, you know, I didn't have my family to go back to because they had moved already to the mainland. So where did you go for breaks and for summers and, and stuff? I was just very blessed and grateful that my dorm advisor in high school, Gordon Farm, who's also an alumni, his mother and grandmother lived in Uwanu and they had like a downstairs unit that was pretty open and they allowed me to stay there. During those times when I needed a place to stay in between transition, between semesters and summer breaks, and eventually, you know, I moved off campus and started to rent on my own and got some friends together. So that became the permanent place, you know, until I graduated, with my, you know, got my graduate degree. And 
So where in Nu'uanu was the farm family? On Kauhina, and he drives their houses like on the left, up on a hill, driving my uh, 1978 four-door Honda Civic wagon on stick shift on, on those hills in Nu'uanu. It was pretty hairy. it's a beautiful neighborhood i lived in that neighborhood since i was three years old wow so it was pretty cool lloyd's handcrafts are probably what he's best known for today we talked shop about his pieces and his creative process so how long you been at ks so i got hired by ks in 97 yeah so it's going on um 23 years now, I think, going on 24. After I graduated from UH, my master's in 96, I worked one year on the big island at Navajo Colonial Pu'u Hawaiian Immersion School. I was teaching grades seven through 10, mm-hmm. social studies in Hawaiian. So I, I spent 10 years in extension education. And then uh, back in 2012, when they were building the cultural center, which is now in the parking lot of where the Chapel Heritage Center parking lot used to be, I don't have a degree in Hawaiian art for that matter, but I just do it as a hobby. It was pretty cool that you know, what the school was willing to do to get me to leave extension education and come on board back to campus to do the arts program. They built a practically a wood shop to my wishes of what I wanted in it and power tools and equipment. And so, yeah, you know, again, just mahalo to Pawahi for all the blessings to you know, it's just a real, you know, a magical life in a way. Yeah. What mm. What would a tough day at work be like? So I guess a tough day would be like, you know, you put a lot of planning into your lesson plans. You have all the materials that you use all prepped up. And then things aren't working because it's not clicking on the student end. They're not comprehending. They're not understanding what you're doing. And even though the lesson's well planned and pretty much laid out for them that they're not getting it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working through those challenges, and I'm just talking about one, one student when you have like three or four students not getting it. I mean, what's a good day of work for you like? Uh, the good day of work is the lessons go, all go well, and I still have time to do my side projects that I love in doing in my workshop, like my carvings or other weaving projects. Or The beauty about what I do is because even though, you know, I may be teaching students certain things and we have projects that we're working with students, that I have the flexibility of doing some of the things that I want to focus on that I can't work with the students, like, you know, making, but it's all interrelated and connected because it's still material cultural arts. So your, your pieces, I, I know that you've you got an extensive collection of, of work that you do. So I just want to throw out some general questions about them. Short answer, long answer, whatever related yep. to, to these stuff. So what piece took you the longest to make? Oh, God. There's been several pieces that taken me long to make. Um, well, I think the key that I weave, those are on average about six months to make. Mm-hmm. To me, that is time consuming. Um, it, you know, I've been carving this image, you know, out of wood, out of Kamani uh-huh. with human hair and mother pro show you know, for the eyes. I mean, this one, it took me a month to carve. Just a month, huh? Yeah, a month. But when I was doing this, I'm still learning how to carve. But to carve something like this image uh, took me a month to make. But I was working on it almost like almost every day. Yeah, yeah. For the Hui Noel Visual Arts Center, they're having an exhibition this summer. Mm-hmm. And because my wife and I have gone there and done a lot of weaving workshops, they invited us to see if we want to submit some pieces. It's a juried exhibition, but it's going to be waived for us because they're going to pay for everything. So it's just really to display our stuff. 
Sure, sure. But so, you know, I, I told him it's not for sale. You know, I'm a lot of these people who do these exhibition stuff. They have a price tag on how much you know the piece would be worth. But I said, you know, my pieces aren't for sale. They're just. I mean, I don't mind sharing them for the public to enjoy and to see the work that we do. But you know, I'm not intending to sell this because you know, I'm not willing to replace it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of work and effort. So, you know, it becomes a personal piece. And this is like an, like an Akua kind of image. So it's not something that you just loosely make and then you say it is what it is and then you're, you're making money off of it. So Sure, yeah, yeah, it's got a lot of meaning. Um, yeah. So is that considered a finished piece or you still got stuff to do on it, no? It's actually a finished piece as is, but I am thinking that... Um, Later on, after this exhibition, I'm going to finish it more, meaning that I'm going to probably put wooden pegs for its eyes. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I'm going to uh, send it as is, but I'm going to give it a nice, uh, you know, oil her down with uh, coconut oil. And then, you know, it'll be set for the exhibition. For weaving a helmet, it used to take me two months. Now I got it down to like two weeks. I mean, but, you know, when you're learning it, you know, it, um, the length of time is longest. And as you do it over and over and over, you find ways to make it more efficient. You know? For, you know, the kind of Akua pieces that you make, is there any ceremony that's involved with doing a piece, like, you know, to start out with, you know, a prayer or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you always have to pull it because, you know, it's so easy that when you do a piece like this and you're, you know, you're heavily involved in it, that you know, if you're not thinking or if you're not, your thoughts are not very clear, you can have an accident. You can hurt yourself, you know, if you mistake and you cut yourself with a chisel, I mean, you know, it could be potentially dangerous or you could do, you know, danger to the piece itself if you're not really focused on what you're, you know, what you're really doing in front of you. Um, but, you know, normally I pull it, you know, I, I pray to, uh, to God, pray to Akua uh, to help me. And then I also do um, Naomakua, a chant to the ancestors to have them help guide me, to show me the pieces. Like sometimes, you know, when you're carving, you know, you get stuck and you're at a standstill. And I just, sometimes I just stare at the piece for like maybe 10, 20 minutes, half an hour, just staring at it. And sometimes while staring at it, it's almost like I go into a state where I actually can visualize and see. It's like having a vision saying, oh, you have to cut this part, chisel this away, and this will come out, and this will happen. So by meditating on the image itself, it tells me what to do. What's the biggest piece you ever made? Oh, but holua sleds are probably the largest pieces that take up as far as you know real estate in the house. So I made spears 14 feet long, too. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So have, have you actually used them? You had a chance oh, to use them? Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't want to make stuff that are functional and, and it's just for looks. I mean, so if you're going to make something that's functional and give it life, you know, use it. It's not meant to just collect us. Oh, that's a great conversation piece. Well, what is it for? I mean, oh. If for whatever crazy reason you were only able to, to keep one thing, what would that be? And it's my woven key of cool because... Most people in, in our community think of me as a cultural practitioner, tie me to the weaving, even though I'm a mixed media person. I do stone and bone and wood, but I think probably that one I would keep. Yeah. In fact, I have it right here. Is that dog teeth? Yeah, dog teeth. I love that. It's, it's incredible. Is that mother of pearl or? A mother of pearl shell. 
and Uhi Uhi, which is our number one endangered hardwood for the eyeballs. Yeah. And, and then that, that's EAEA, right? EAEA, yeah, and it has a coconut oil smell because coconut is like a body form of cool. Okay. Yeah, probably this one I probably would keep the most, probably, even though I have a lot of stuff. So because I have two kids, I try to make sure I make two of everything. So when the time comes, no worries. You get your own little museum. You get your own museum. Here you go. <laughs> I can't, we can't take it with us when we holler. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love what I do. I love uh, the fact that I can do the work that I do. Now, with a family of his own and knowing what his upbringing was like, it's wonderful to see how present he is as a husband and father and how he embraces his responsibilities, both to his family and his community. So um, how did you and your wife meet? A group of friends of mine, they had a band called Ovaila. They used to gig at Restaurant Row at Pizza Bob's. Mm -hmm. So one night, we were playing music. So I went there, and it just so happens that my wife's, one of her girlfriends who was dancing with her in Waikiki, her boyfriend was in the band, which was my friend. So I went to see them as my friends, but then she joined uh, her girlfriend to go see them play. And um, anyway, she stood out in the crowd, and, you know, I saw one of those, um, you know, those people that carry roses in these bouquets and I bought a rose for her and had it sent to her. And then next thing I know, you know, and then we were in line one, you know, in line, I bought her, offered to buy her a drink. And then after that, um, she gave me her business card. And, you know, back then it was only pagers, right? People only had cell phones yet at that time, at least not for the masses. So she had a pager and I thought it was pretty cool that, Oh, wow. She's pretty professional, sophisticated. And then I seen her leaving with somebody. So I guess, you know, I didn't bother to call her after that. I waited, I held onto her card for like a month. Mm-hmm. And then I said, oh, well, you know, maybe I give her a call. And, and then I called her and I said, you're not the person I thought you were. Because, <laughs> you know, I saw so many other people that night too. And I was like, oh, okay. But I was thinking maybe that was her friend or something. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So, so she left with someone or you right. were watching somebody else leave with a guy? I watched her, my wife leave with a guy but she still was very uh enamored that i gave her a rose or she was kind of touched that or i thought oh it was nice a nice gesture but okay i, I think she's with somebody so you know you don't know these things right when you first yeah, meet yeah. somebody and so that was that a month later i called her up and she remembered who i was mm-hmm. and then we got together and then um and then that led to another get together our first date after that night at Pizza Bob's, there was a slacky festival down at McCoy Pavilion, Alamoana Beach Park. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, let's go out. Let's go listen. You know, listen to some slacky, whatever. I, th- I wasn't quite sure what she was really into. So you know, I, and I was a starving college student at the time. So I had my like five gallon bucket with my Budweiser beer filled with ice, and I had a piece of plywood that I sat on as my chair. So you know, she thought, oh my god. Here's this brother coming with a five-gallon bucket with a piece of board to sit on as a chair in this crowd of people. She said, oh, I don't know about this guy. But then I think she learned that, you know, I had career aspirations. So she gave me a try. And uh, yeah, after that, you know, we started connecting and then realized that, you know, she was very important in my life and, and I loved her. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we've been together ever since then. So that was around, you know, 1995 or so. You know, we were having this one-year long-distance relationship. So she was living on Oahu. And Kamehameha Schools is looking for Hawaiian language teachers. So I said, well, okay, I'll come back to Oahu. So I, after that, I went to um, 
worked for Kamehameha in 97. And a year after that, my wife and I got married in 98. Next thing you know, you have kids. And Is she part Hawaiian? Is she Filipino? What is she? My wife is Hawaiian. She's Hawaiian, Filipino, Chinese, Tahitian. Um, okay. Yeah. She's actually on the Hawaiian homes list. So she's more than 50% Hawaiian. Okay. Um, so my kids are more Hawaiian than I am by blood. <laughs> my 30-year-old self was really working hard. One time I had five jobs and Kamehameha was just one of them. KS full-time teaching. I was teaching at night classes at LCC. I was working at Native Books. I was playing music in Waikiki. Yeah. And I even worked Tihatis and used to fly on the airplanes where I used to, like, Friday after I power work, I used to leave Kapolei, go home, shower, get on the airplane, fly to New York. Never left the terminal, got back on the plane, flew back to Hawaii, arrived Saturday afternoon, go home, shower, go to the airport, jump on the plane, fly to Chicago, O'Hare, play music, same thing, fly on the plane, get back to Honolulu Sunday evening, and go back to school, teach Monday. I can't believe I did that for like uh, like seven months. That was before 9-11. That was the same year. I said, you know, I'm done with it. I can't do this. I can't spend a whole weekend on an airplane, you know, flying across the East Coast and Chicago to Hawaii back and forth. And still teach. And then, you know, all the other jobs I had, it was just crazy. But I did that because it allowed my wife to stay home with our kids uh-huh. all the way until they were like in third grade or so. And then my wife started to like work at the school where their kids were going elementary school, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wow. It was very important for them to uh, to have someone home all the time for them, you know, to take yeah. them to who picked them up and strong work on you that that's a testament to your dedication to you know having that strong family unit good for you man so where do you live so uh, my family and i we live with my uh with my sister-in-law in mililani mm-hmm. and the reason why we came to mililani was because we thought it was a, a better community for our two kids to go to school in mililani because mililani high school has a good program mm-hmm. our kids did go to hawaiian immersion uh, during their elementary schooling so we put them back in public school and started middle school here in Mililani, and they both graduated from Mililani High School. How old are they? Well, what are they doing now? So uh, my daughter graduated from the University of Hawaii last year in December. Congratulations. Um, with a degree at Mahalo and with a degree in communications. And uh, she now is working for Century 21. And my son graduated from Mililani High School in 2019. And he is the Merchant Marine. So right now he is on a boat carrier ship uh, in, the, in the middle of the ocean, sailing towards Africa to the Suez Canal, where he's uh, working to become a ship engineer. So he works in the engine room on this big boat carrier ship. Wow. So he decided to learn a trade. Mm-hmm. So he was going to school at um, Seafarers International Union uh, Marine Maritime uh, School up at Piney Point in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So he went to school there to learn the shipping industry. So he likes being on the ocean, working on ships. Mm-hmm. He wants to make money so that he can come back home, go pay for his own schooling, and uh, train as a crew member for Hokulea. We're a very cultural family. We do a lot of cultural things. I've been doing my Hawaiian cultural arts or, you know, Hana no Eo before my kids was born. So... You know, when they were getting to the age where they can kind of recognize things, you know, it became very jaded to them to, to be around all these Hawaiian things, to see dad and mom do different things um, to the point that, you know, they've seen it enough, but whether or not they want to do it themselves, you know, we don't kind of like tell them you guys should do this. We want them to figure out for themselves that when that time comes that they are ready to 
to Awamo to carry on those kulianas or to do those kind of things. So, because, you know, we want our children to be leaders in their own things that they want to do to pursue their dreams, not what dad says or not what mom says. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we want the best for our kids, but we want them to be the ones to make, you know, choose their own destiny, what they want to be, you know, when they grow mm-hmm. up. Yeah, yeah. Supporting them as best as we can. Wonderful. So what's, what's your comfort food? Oh, man. I have so much comfort food, but I think it would be my mother-in-law's beef stew. If not, you know, I like to go down to White Kelly Shopping Center. They have all these food wagons over there, and I go to Laverne's Hawaiian Food, and I have their uh, potato stew. <laughs> Again, more pork, right? Ah, whatever. What do you do to unwind and relax? Believe it or not, doing my cultural arts sometimes, like carving, wood carving, is really kind of a... Uh, is meditative for me, manipulating through carving, bringing out the image or the desired piece that I want to create from that wood. Mm-hmm. To me, that's kind of meditative or sometimes like Zen carving. So doing those cultural things, sometimes it brings me a lot of joy and happiness to do cultural arts. If not that, you know, surfing, longboarding, paddling out, catching some nice uh, longboard riding waves for some long rides. Uh, so where do you go for that? Key, Pops. Uh, if not, you know, Ka'ava. Um, there's a nice break out there. For one, if I go Waikiki, I don't have to bring a board. And the uncle there is an alumni who owns his own stand at the Royal Hawaiian Shopping Center. What's his name? Ted Bush. I think it's Michael Chun's classmate. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, just come down. You and your boy going to serve. Yeah, come down. Just take him <laughs> out all day. It's, it's all good. Sweet, sweet. But, you know, you were asking earlier about what I do for fun sometimes. I just got into Oculus. I don't know if you ever heard of Oculus. No, the creators of Facebook came out with this virtual reality gaming system called Oculus. So uh, I get to uh, connect with some of my friends and play like virtual reality shoot 'em up games, zombie games, you know, stuff like that. Oh, nice. Oculus. In case there's ever going to be a, a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be so well prepared. <laughs> Everybody who took the, uh, the COVID shot, you probably took yours. I did. Yeah, I got mine early. Yeah. Right. If you turn green next year, then uh, then you know why. Huh? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I know to call for, for help with the zombies. Actually, I, I would be the zombie then, right? <laughs> you know, over, over the course of your life, was there a life-changing moment that, you know, created an experience that just kind of changed the direction of your life? I would say it was a career move I did after five years in at Kamehameha. I left campus as a teacher to uh, join Hawaiian Studies Institute and do this program called uh, Ikepuna Hawaii, which is a Hawaiian traveling program. And it lasted for about five years where we traveled to the mainland. We did cultural presentations to our our alumni group in Washington, DC, in Utah, in Washington, in Oregon, in California, all the islands. We went to all the DOE schools and we went into fourth grade classrooms and did presentations on different aspects of Hawaiian material culture. Mm-hmm. clothing, royalty, navigation, ahutua'a, and music and hula. So that kind of you know, opened my eyes to be able to travel more. Um, and uh, and just really, too, and I, I think the unique opportunity was working with Bishop Museum artifacts that the school borrowed from the museum with the intention of using the artifacts to tell stories about how they were made, how they were used, mm-hmm. and handling those, you know, those mea kupuna in hand. And letting the kids see them and be able to touch them, you know, it really was uh, made me look at culture in a different way. But just 
giving me a greater appreciation for those things. What is something important that you learned about yourself after high school? Um, the ability to stand on my own two feet without uh, outside support. Okay. Um, and I think because I, so I talked about me being a foster child mm -hmm. and the foster parents that I had kind of uh, ingrained this program in me that, you know, you really have to look out for yourself. It's not really... Um, because, you know, they're not my biological family, but, you know, they tried to raise me the best they could. And uh, so the idea to be able to just be independent, because I never really had real family that would support me throughout, throughout the years as I was growing up. So, you know, teaching our children, now that I have two kids that are adults, you know, teaching them to be independent, to be able to stand on their own two feet, to not be able to rely on family, yeah. the idea to be very independent and to survive without any anyone else's help is kind of like one of the greatest lessons I probably learned. How do you feel about turning 50? I think 50 is a new 40. Uh, definitely a little bit more wiser than I was when I was 40 and probably um, financially much in a better place than I was when I was 40. See, I don't really feel like I'm 50. You know, I, it just means our, our circle of friends got to be in the same generation as where we are so that we don't feel old. I'm glad I'm not 60. How's that? Because <laughs> I think if you do this again when we're 60, man, alive, the stories that everybody's going to add to their podcast when we turn 60, that's going to be something else. Working with older, you know, cultural practitioners, especially men, kind of how, you know, their family life is. Like some of them are settled and some of them are unsettled, you know, it's like, okay. So, you know, I'm kind of more aware of those things because I don't want to fall in some of those... Um, into those little traps that some of these other guys have. And, you know, I know what I want for my reality. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say is the most meaningful thing you've done in your life so far? Getting married and having my kids, I think probably was the most meaningful thing. Um, I guess because, you know, growing up in my background and coming from, uh, I guess, a, I don't know, what do you want to call it? A dysfunctional family, but um not have wanting to have that for my own family with my own kids with my wife um, mm -hmm. so i think even beyond the arts and stuff that i do i think to me that's more important my family is more important number one in everything that i do when it really matters in the end is your family so the most important thing was having good relationship with my kids and trying to live pono with my wife every day so that we live in harmony with our kids well, you know, I had I had a lot of good mentors, you know, there was a lot of male role models that, you know, I give credit to that helped me where I'm at today. You know, it's not something that uh, you can just figure it out on your own. You know, it's a lot of different factors and facets in our experiences growing up that really helped shape, uh, like you said, your own doctrine or philosophy of how you look at life. And um, yeah. finish this sentence. When I'm gone, I hope I'll be remembered for... Well, you know, I think for my family that, you know, my, my children will be happy, uh, will be proud of me as, as their father and, and including my wife, uh, helping to move the bar a little bit further when it comes to uh, in our Lahui in regards to cultural arts, uh, making more people perpetuate our practice. Because I think cultural tourism, people learn something that they can do with their hands and take back with them wherever they come from it's something that will be more meaningful and lasting and in the things that they do or they learn that they 
you know, the make and take with them, but to also provide a, a source of livelihood for them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of things I w- would love to do. Um, throwing my hat in the political ring, perhaps, you know, because we need good Kanakas in positions of power and influence in our government, our state government, and even at the federal level, because, you know, like I said, you know, if we don't, we're going to lose everything that we have as, as things that we are, our birthrights that really was meant for us to have as a people. When you have non-Hawaiians making those decisions for not just for us, but, you know, for the betterment of the general public, you know, mm-hmm. but we, we need better representation for Kanakas. So who knows, maybe one day that might be a future career, just like your grandpa, you know. Well, there you go. Wonderful. We definitely need a lot more Native Hawaiian voices with good heads on their shoulder. Well, my, my grandfather always said that Hawaiians always, you know, benefit from good leaders. The more voices that we have with good heads on their shoulders and everything like that, with good understanding of the culture and the importance of it and everything, it makes a big difference. So good for you, man. Do you have a philosophy that you live by? I guess for me, it would be like, you know, to see whatever you do, if you start something, finish it. Because if not, no one else is going to finish it for you. So, you know, you have to see things through the end because when you do, then you have that sense of accomplishment. I I can see your artistic roots because you start a project, you get the satisfaction over the course, but, you know, a nice bit of it is, is when the piece is finished. So... Yes. <laughs> and we, you know, we always tell our students, trust the process because you can't see it right now, but believe me, you will after all of those things. When you set small goals or small baby steps and you finish those things, you know, it all becomes another feather in your cap and yeah. you know, it builds your self-confidence and even more so you can share that experience with others. I mean, it can apply to many different things, not just the work that I do, but it can also apply in relationships too. You know, when you have like uh, whatever disagreement, try to work things out when you can so that when you go to sleep at night, you know, you, you can wake up knowing the next day that, you know, you're on a clean slate again. And Well, you know, yesterday I had long hair. Uh, yesterday I cut it. Oh, you know what? I noticed that. Yeah, that's what's different about you. You had your hair in a ponytail the last time. My wife uh, told me her truth. She says, you're not attracted to me with long hair. Why didn't you tell me a long time ago? I would have cut it earlier. <laughs> I, cut it, I cut it yesterday, but I saved it. I saved my hair because I was really growing it to incorporate the hair into a cultural piece for a carving or for a hair helmet. I'm going to weave an image in which I'm going to use my hair for that image. Um, what was the length that, that you got out of the hair? Well, six inches worth of hair, the length. Hey, that that's the mana man that's the mana that's right and you know compare like the hair helmet that i showed you guys you know that's when my hair was black hey, you know what some of us we got to work on getting that hair mana because before long not gonna have hair <laughs> it was good good talking to you man yeah same here dave awesome. yeah love to have a beer with you when i'm back in hawaii so definitely brother yeah, <laughs> let me know when you're coming back right on right on sounds right. good I hope you enjoyed this episode of Primetime 89. I'd like to thank our guest, Kumula'au Lloyd Singh, for taking the time to talk story with us. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped put this together. Jamie Barboza and Nicole Yoshimitsu, Wendy Brown and Kaylee Aquaro. And a special thank you to Dwayne Andrus for the music 
and Elizabeth Matson with production and editing. I'm your host, David Matson. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest updates and news on upcoming episodes and join us again with another classmate on Primetime 89.